Well, let's jump into our message this evening. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians, which is the Apostle Paul's thesis on the doctrine of salvation by faith, the glorious truth of the gospel that we are not saved by anything we do. We're not saved by good works, we're not saved by keeping the Old Testament law, but by placing our faith in what Jesus has done by living, dying, and rising from the dead in our place. Last week I shared a personal story at the end of the service about something that God has been doing in my life through our study of Galatians and how he's been impacting me with the power and security of salvation by faith. But as I walked away last week, I just had this nagging feeling and as I thought about it more and more that, that I ran the risk of creating some confusion, which is the last thing that I would ever wanna do because what I shared while I felt it was clear, I think there might have been room in there for some people to hear whatever they want to hear in there. And when you're talking about a subject like people that we know and love who have walked away from God, and we're talking about the question of are they still saved or are they not saved, we all have a desire to have somebody tell us that they're all definitely saved. And so it's easy with what I was sharing for us to hear whatever we want to hear in there. And it would be great if I knew everything about the Bible and doctrine and theology and could emphatically tell you everything that I teach with absolute certainty, but I can't. I, I wrestle with my theology. I wrestle with the scriptures the same way that I encourage you to. And when I encounter people in real life, I really do check if my theology still works with people and life and, and the situations that I run into. The single probably most common misconception when people listen to me teach online, they meet me and they assume that I know the whole Bible as well as I know whatever I taught last week. And I'm like, I'm like, no, no, you know what I know that well? Whatever I'm teaching next Sunday, that's what I know. If you check back in 30 years, hopefully I'll know the whole Bible, but I'm not there yet. And my hope for all of us is that if we're all still here 10 years from now on the earth, that we will know more than we know today. I hope that our understanding of God and the Bible 10 years from now is deeper than it is today, that it's more nuanced and that it's more detailed. And I'm committed to that journey personally. And I believe that being part of a church where we can wrestle with difficult issues honestly and safely is invaluable on that journey of growing and understanding. There's so much benefit to being in a church like that and being especially part of a small group as well where you can ask honest questions and be honest about the things that you're wrestling with theologically. So while I wanna be honest and wrestle with my theology, I don't ever wanna create confusion from the front of the church, from the pulpit here, and I feel like what I shared at the end of last week's message left too much room for potential confusion. And so as I was thinking about things this week, I felt like the right thing to do was to, to take a break from the text of Galatians and talk about some things that still relate to Galatians but surround the sort of things that we talked about last week. I wanna talk about things like, how do I know if I'm saved? That's the big thing I wanna talk about today. How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if someone else is saved? And maybe how far or, or how long can a person walk away from God and still be saved? Is there a limit? If you've been a believer for a while, you know these are important questions relating to you, relating to me, and relating to all kinds of people that we know who love the Lord or maybe love the Lord at one time. And I'm trusting in the grace of God and believing that today's study is gonna be helpful and bring us some clarity, whether it's challenging or comforting. And I think it's gonna give us some great content to wrestle with and talk about more in our men's and women's groups this week. If the most important question in life is, am I saved? 
then surely the second most important question has to be, how do I know? How do I know if I'm saved? We're saved when we place our faith in what Jesus has done for us. The life he lived, the death he died, and the victory he won by rising from the dead. We're saved when we believe and confess that he did those things in our place. When we do that, we receive forgiveness of our sins. The gift of what's called salvation. And the Holy Spirit comes into our life and the Holy Spirit gives us a new spirit. We are reborn spiritually or born again as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So when someone says, whether it's you or me or a friend we have, when someone says, I've been born again, I've become a Christian, I am saved, how do we know? How do we know? Do we just take their word for it? Well, let's talk about a few different angles and factors that come into play around this question. And I want to preface this by saying that, that God is the judge. He's the only judge. Now, whenever anybody says, well, only God can judge me, you know, I always think, yes, that should scare you, like a lot, because he will, and he is. He's the only judge, and he's going to judge rightly. And when God judges all humanity, here's what we know. There won't be a single instance, a single case, a single person where anyone who has ever lived on the earth will think even to themselves in that moment, that's not fair. That will not happen. God's judgment of every single person will be absolutely perfect and everyone will agree in every instance that judgment is right and it is true. But in the meantime, we have to make decisions and we have to live and we have to, yes, even judge with the information that God has given us in his word. God could make an exception to any of the points that I'm about to make, but I can tell you this, he will never contradict his word. He will never contradict his word, ever. So let's dig into what the word tells us. And this is going to be your first fill-in, and then we'll talk about it. Write this down. A Christian confesses to be a Christian. A Christian confesses to be a Christian. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There is no scenario anywhere in the New Testament where a person is saved but refuses to publicly acknowledge it. There's no biblical precedent for someone to say, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't really like to talk about it. I think it's a, it's a private, personal matter. If somebody asks me, I'll, I'll dodge the question usually because I don't want to offend them, and I'll just say something like, you know, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person, spiritual person. Well, let's get really blunt because you say, well, 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 Jeff, maybe you're just reading it from a legalistic perspective. Jesus himself was actually harsher than I am. It's on your outlines. Jesus said in Matthew 10, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you've ever chickened out on the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. So you can just exhale and take a breath. Because by the way, we've all done that, haven't we? We've all had a moment where like we knew God was telling us to talk to a person about the Lord and we were like, 
okay, they got up and left. There's nothing I can do anymore. We've all done that if we're honest. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the person who is unwilling to publicly bear the name of Jesus. They're unwilling to be identified publicly as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus himself says, that's not an option. That's not an option for you to keep this a secret and be so ashamed of me that if someone asks, you won't even tell them that you're my follower. He says, then then you're not my follower. We don't have a relationship and I don't know you, you don't know me. In the early church, the outward sign of salvation was not raising your hand at the end of the message or, or coming up to the altar in church. The outward sign of salvation, the declaration that you were following Jesus was baptism. Baptism was a public declaration of faith and identification with the Lord Jesus. It was something that you had to consciously choose to do. You know, because you couldn't just say, well, I I didn't really mean to do it. I just went to church and then before I knew it, I was in the water. I was under the water and I came out and people were clapping. And I don't know what happened. That's not how it works. You have to consciously make the choice to do it, to walk up, to plan it most of the time. It can't happen by accident. And it's not something that can generally happen because you just got caught up in the emotions of the moment. And in the early church, that was considered the moment someone became a believer, when they made their public declaration of faith by identifying with Jesus through baptism. So the first way that we know we're saved is that a Christian confesses to be a Christian. Second thing you can write down, a Christian places their faith in Jesus as Lord and God. They place their faith in Jesus as Lord and God. Looking at Romans 10, 9 again, you'll remember Paul said, if you confess with your mouth the who Jesus, the the Lord Jesus. The Jesus that saves is the Lord Jesus. Jesus the philosopher, Jesus the great teacher, Jesus the moral instructor, Jesus the enlightened one, Jesus the prophet cannot save you. Only the Lord Jesus can save you. Even believing in God is not enough. He has to be the Lord of your life. It is possible to intellectually recognize the reality and accept the reality that a man named Jesus came to the earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead in victory over death, proving himself to be God in the flesh. It is possible to believe all of that and yet not be saved. Because you can believe all of that and yet never allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Never allow him to be God over your life. Never welcome him into your life in that capacity. The only Jesus that can save you is the Lord Jesus and accepting his free gift of salvation means recognizing the reality that because he's God and because he has saved you, he is the one who deserves to be sitting on the throne of your life, ruling and reigning as king over your life. Salvation means a regime change in a person's life. It means abdicating the throne in one's heart and inviting Jesus to sit upon it. A Christian places their faith in Jesus as Lord and God, Lord and God. The third identifying trait we see in a Christian is that a Christian undergoes spiritual transformation. Write that down. A Christian undergoes spiritual transformation. 
In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this famous verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You might want to underline that on your outlines. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this verse describes what happens when we place our faith in Jesus to save us. Our old spirit, our broken, sinful, fallen spirit is replaced by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Spiritually, we become a new creation. Our old spirit has passed away, Paul says. When we're truly saved, the spiritual side of our being, the spiritual side of our lives undergoes nothing less than a complete sea change. Now, until we receive our new resurrected bodies when we go to be with the Lord Jesus, we're still trapped in these broken, sinful, fallen, fleshly bodies that include things like our mind and emotions, which creates this war between our flesh, the body that we're in, and our spirit. And it's a war that begins the moment that we are saved because those two sides of us want different things. Our flesh is controlled by our own selfish lusts and desires, while our spirit is controlled by the Lord. And the war is over which one of those is going to control us moment to moment, day by day, the flesh or the spirit. But here's what I want us to realize. Even though we're still in that war between the flesh and the spirit, even though it takes a lifetime to learn how to live in surrender to the spirit, and even though none of us will actually fully surrender to the spirit till we arrive in the presence of Jesus, Still, in the meantime, write this down, God's spirit in us causes us to want to be freed from our flesh. It causes us to want to be freed from our flesh. We're frustrated that the body we're in, the mind we have, won't get on board and move consistently in the same direction as the spirit of God within us. It bothers us that they're at war. God's spirit changes what we want. It makes us want more of him. It makes us want to be led by him rather than our flesh, to walk with him closely and experience his presence, to walk in light rather than darkness, to not be a slave to sin and the shame and the guilt that comes along with it and the hurt and the pain that it brings. God's spirit changes our ultimate desires even as we're still battling our flesh. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Not saying that God gives you whatever you want, but saying that God's spirit in you actually changes what you want. His spirit gives you the things that you desire, places those desires in you, causes you to want for good, right things. Four different times in the Bible, God tells us that when his spirit comes into someone's life, something happens that can only be described as the laws of God get written on our heart. In other words, we don't have to try and do what's right by just following a list of rules on the wall or stone tablets or in a book, but, but the spirit of God in us actually gives us the desire to want to live for God. It's what we want to do. It's coming from within us, from the heart. The Holy Spirit changes who we want to be. It changes the things that we find joy and meaning in. We become, as Paul said, a new creation. There's a significant change. And while it takes time, I know it takes time for that inward change to work its way out and, and affect our outward behavior, 
That does, though, inevitably happen over time. It really does happen. As our motivations and desires change, our actions will inevitably begin to follow and change too. Because outward actions are always driven by internal motivations. I'm not talking about someone who says, oh, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to have to stop doing that and that and that. I'm talking about a spirit level change that causes a person to say, now that I'm a new creation, now that God is in me, I'm finding myself not wanting to do that the same way. I'm finding myself feeling unfulfilled when I do that now. I don't know how I'm going to stop, but I just know that it it doesn't hold the same appeal for me that it used to. Something has changed within me. Because a Christian undergoes spiritual transformation. That's another piece of evidence. Write this down, next piece of evidence. A Christian has their identity as a child of God affirmed by the Holy Spirit. A Christian has their identity as a child of God affirmed by the Holy Spirit. In the chapter of Galatians, we finished last week, chapter 4, Paul described for us a significant piece of evidence that we are saved. He said, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul is saying that when we're saved and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, The Holy Spirit confirms our salvation by giving us the personal experience, the actual feeling of belonging to God, the feeling of being a son or daughter of God. He makes us feel differently about the way we relate to God, and the Holy Spirit works to lead us to approach God as a loving Heavenly Father. One of the major evidences of salvation is the personal experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We feel God within us. We experience him leading and guiding our thoughts. We sense his presence. Now, while our personal experience with the Holy Spirit is is vital, it's important, we have to acknowledge that it's not the only evidence that is needed. And it's not enough evidence on its own. Because when we say we've had the personal experience of the Holy Spirit, we are, in essence, testifying about ourselves. We're being our own witnesses. And unfortunately, if you haven't noticed, we're also really, really good at deceiving ourselves. Really good. I've shared before that the voices and narratives that we hear in our head don't just come from the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, it's not that the only thoughts you have are now good, right, and pure thoughts. The only voice you have is the Holy Spirit. That's that's not how it works. We have the voice of the Spirit, but we also still have the voice of our emotions, which are usually being controlled by our sin nature, our flesh, as the Bible calls it. And it's incredibly important for all believers to recognize this. We should not blindly trust the voice in our head. What we need to do is learn how to recognize the difference between the voice that is the Holy Spirit and the voice that is our flesh. We need to learn how different they sound. How do we do that? By spending time with the Lord in his word. Because in the word is where we find out what the voice of God sounds like. It's where we learn his accent, the way he talks, the kinds of things he says, what his character is like. And the more we learn about his character, the more we're able to say, oh, oh, that's the voice of the Lord speaking. Or that is not the voice of the Lord. I might really want to do that, but it's not the voice of the Lord. Because here's the thing the Bible says about the heart. It says the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately wicked. And when Christians don't understand that we have to learn to tell the difference between the voice of the Spirit and the voice of the flesh, Christians end up ascribing the voice of the flesh to the voice of God. And Christians end up saying things like, well, I know the Bible says differently, but I just feel like God has made an exception for me to sleep with my boyfriend. God's made an exception for me to sleep with my girlfriend because I thought about it and I, and I had this little voice in my head say, it's okay, go for it. I don't realize, well, of course you did. I believe you that you heard a voice. It just wasn't the voice of the Lord. He's not the only one in your head. So while a believer does have the personal experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit, giving us the feeling of being a child of God, we cannot and should not ever gamble our eternity on our feelings. In other words, if you're here and you believe you're a Christian, it should not be because the only piece of evidence you have is like, well, I just feel, I feel like I am. You're ignoring all the other evidence and gambling your eternity that you're listening to the voice of the Spirit and not the voice of your flesh and just telling yourself what you want to hear. You're gambling that you're not deceiving yourself. And you want to make sure that there's more evidence of salvation in your life than just a feeling that you have. Write this down. A Christian's faith inevitably changes the way they live. A Christian's faith inevitably changes the way they live. These are all pieces of evidence for salvation in a person's life. We've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians, a document that addresses the, the false teaching that salvation can be gained by works, by doing good stuff. But there's a crucial companion piece to the letter to the Galatians. In other words, if you want to learn about how salvation works, you should not read just the letter to the Galatians. Part two, the other side of it, is the letter of James. It should be required reading for anyone who's studying the letter to the Galatians. Because James is written from the other side of the salvation issue. It's a document that addresses the false teaching that one can believe that one can have faith without that faith producing any good works. That is as much a false teaching as the idea that you can be saved by works. You can't be saved by works, but James says also remember that real faith will produce works as well. So what James does is help us understand what the Bible means when it talks about this word faith. Because we can get in trouble if we just decide that we're going to define it ourselves. And that's where James comes in. I'm going to ask you if you would to flip to James chapter 2 in your Bibles. And we'll start in verse 14 in a minute. James chapter 2 verse 14. As I said earlier, faith is not simply intellectual assent. Faith is genuine belief that God loves us and has saved us. And it inevitably causes a change in the way we live. So I'll explain a few things as we read through James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, and then underline this, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. Now here's the idea. If your faith doesn't move you to action, 
does it actually exist? Because if your faith doesn't move you to action, it's completely meaningless. There's no difference then between having faith and not having faith. It changes nothing. And if you're not tracking with me yet, let me put it this way. If I find out that a massive tsunami is on its way to Vancouver right now, and I call as many people as I can to tell them, I want them to believe me, right? I want them to believe me. I want them to have faith in what I'm telling them. Now let me ask you, do I want them to have faith in the sense that I want them to say the words, okay, Jeff, I believe you. Or do I want them to have faith in the sense that I want them to jump in their car and drive to safety? You know it's what it is, obviously. It's the latter because if the faith that they have doesn't make them do anything, then it makes no difference whether they believe me or not. They're going to die in the tsunami either way. They're going to die allegedly believing me or they're actually going to believe me enough to do something with it. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God? You do well. And underline this, even the demons believe and tremble. James makes his point using the most extreme example possible. He says faith isn't just about believing something with your mind or recognizing something as true. Don't forget, James says, even the demons know that God is real and they know that he is the ruler of all things, but they're not saved. The implication is sobering. As we said earlier, one can believe in God. One can intellectually recognize the reality that Jesus is God. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. One can intellectually recognize all of that and not be saved. Even the demons recognize that God is God. They have to, but they do not recognize him as their God. They do not serve him as Lord. They do not worship him. To receive salvation, we must approach God as our God. That means placing our lives in his hands to rule and reign over us. By way of analogy, imagine a mighty emperor in the Middle Ages and he, this emperor leads the greatest kingdom on the earth, but he doesn't force anyone to come under his reign. What he does is he goes into a city and he says, if you'll become part of my kingdom, if you will allow me to rule over your city, I will protect it and I will provide for it. Your city won't ever have to worry about being pillaged or burned to the ground by some invading force because you will have the backing of my entire army. And if food gets scarce, I will import whatever you need. The king of that city has to make a choice. And he might even ask this insulting question. He might say, well, is there any way I can get the protection and provision that you're offering without giving up my throne? And the emperor would respond, no. It's a take it or leave it deal. Here's the bottom line. There's no scenario in which the king of the city stays on his throne and still receives the protection and provision of the emperor because that's not the deal that's being offered. It's not the deal. The king is not the one setting the terms of the deal because the king is not the one who can provide the provision and protection. He's the one who needs the provision and protection. The emperor sets the terms because he is the one who can provide 
what the other needs. Now, what would we think of the king in that analogy if he didn't take the emperor's deal, but after the emperor left, he he looks around his court and he says to his advisors something like, you know, here's the thing. I feel like the emperor is a really good guy. Or at least if he is a good guy, then he'll provide the provision and protection that I need, even though I didn't take the deal. I mean, if he's a good guy, he'll do that, right? Or maybe he says, you know, I, I know the emperor said we didn't have a deal, but, but deep down, I feel like we do. I feel like we do. Or, you know, I feel like we have a deal because what the emperor really wants is for me to be true to myself. And I'm a king, and I can't be true to myself if I get off this throne because I want to be a king. And surely if he's a good emperor, he wants me to be happy. We would all think, you fool. You fool. You do not have a deal with the emperor. He was clear. He was explicit about the terms of the offer. And when you need protection and provision... He won't be there because you didn't take the deal. It doesn't matter what you tell yourself. You didn't take the deal. It's not enough to just believe with your mind. You have to believe with your life. Believing in God means abdicating the throne in your life because you recognize that he's God and so he's the one who should be sitting on that throne. You cannot claim to have placed your faith in Jesus while acknowledging him as God in only your intellectual concept of him. James says even the demons do that and they're not saved. Then James goes on in verse 20 and he says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now because we don't have time to do a whole study through the letter of James, don't get caught up in any specific phrases or terms in that text. What James is saying He's saying that Abraham's faith caused him to trust in God actively. It affected the actions that he took. The faith of Abraham caused him to behave a certain way. And as he took those steps of faith, his faith increased all the more. God declared Abraham righteous because Abraham had faith in God. And that faith naturally changed the way Abraham lived his life. Abraham wasn't saved because of what he did. He was saved because his faith was real. And because his faith was real, it caused him to act in a certain way. James's bottom line is this. If your faith doesn't have any impact on the way you live, then your faith doesn't exist. Because you're claiming to have something that affects nothing. If there's no change at all, then what difference does it make if you have faith or not? James's point is that you don't because genuine faith in God can't help but change the way you live. Imagine a pill, I don't know why you would do this, but but imagine a pill that you could take and for everyone in the world, you take the pill, instantly your skin turns blue. Without exception, any person, okay? If a person said, oh yeah, I took one of those pills 
but their skin wasn't blue. Did they take one of those pills? No, they didn't take one of those pills. How would you know that? Because their skin isn't blue. It's really obvious. If you take the pill, your skin turns blue. Therefore, if you don't have blue skin, you didn't take the pill. James is saying good works are the natural and inevitable byproduct, the outward evidence of genuine faith. So just like that, if you have no good works in your life, you have no genuine faith. Just as if you're not blue, then you didn't take the pill that turns you blue. If you took the faith pill, then you're gonna produce good works. That's just what's gonna happen. You claiming to have faith without good works, James says is as ridiculous as claiming that you took a pill that turns you blue, but your skin isn't blue. It doesn't make any kind of sense. The good works that James is talking about are often called fruit in the Bible. The idea is that these actions of faith, that these steps that you take in life, the idea is that they're a natural byproduct of faith. That faith is the tree in your life that naturally produces good works. Now please understand this, sticking with the blue pill analogy, if you painted your skin blue, would that mean that you took one of the pills? No, it would mean you painted your skin blue, right? If you try and do good works, it doesn't mean that you have genuine faith. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying, so listen, if you don't have good works, if you're not serving the Lord actively, I mean, you need to get busy. You need to get busy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to look at your heart if there's no good works because you don't have genuine faith. You need to deal with the soil. You need to deal with the roots. You don't just stand in front of a tree that's not producing fruit and yell at the branches, bear fruit, bear fruit, stupid tree, bear fruit. That's not gonna do anything. You gotta look at the roots, you gotta look at the soil. Is it getting enough water? All these things. And what James is saying is listen, if there's no good works in your life, you gotta look at your roots do you actually have a relationship with God? Have you actually given your life to him? Have you actually placed your faith in him to save you? Because if you have, the good works will follow naturally. Now let's skip ahead to verse 26. James ends by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, underline this, so faith without works is dead also. You can plop down a dead body, point to it and say, there's a person. But we all understand that if the spirits left the body, they're dead. Even though all the bits might appear to be there, they're dead without their spirit. We can have all the intellectual bits of faith. We can even intellectually recognize that Jesus is God. We can claim to have faith. But James says, if the faith that you say you have isn't producing any fruit, then it's a dead body lying on the floor. There's nothing behind it. It might look like everything's there, but it's dead. A Christian's faith inevitably changes the way that they live. Now there's not gonna be time today for me to go in depth the way that all of these subjects truly deserve. So I'm just gonna lead us to a few conclusions and very briefly touch on some things that you might wanna explore some more in your own studies. So, so how do we know we're saved? Well, we use the Bible to evaluate ourselves and we ask the question, okay, if I believe I'm saved, Am I open about the fact that I'm a Christian? Or if someone asks me, am I like, well, it depends what you mean by Christian. Or am I honest about it? Is Jesus the Lord and God of my life? Or at a minimum, is that the goal, that he would rule and reign over my life? Or am I like, no, listen, I'm, I'm my own person. 
I'm the king of my life, not really taking applications for that position right now or ever. Have we undergone a transformation into a new creation? Or, or just ask this, when we became believers and we say the Holy Spirit came into our life, did anything actually change? Did anything change? Anything at all? Have we had the personal experience of the Holy Spirit in us, affirming our identity as a child of God? And then does our faith change the way we live? Is there fruit in our lives? The answers will tell us if we're definitely a believer, if we need to be concerned, or if we're not a believer. We believe in this church in eternal security. We don't have time again to get into that. It's a whole other study today. We've done it before. We'll do it again soon. But eternal security is the belief summarized as once saved, always saved. It's the doctrine that when you receive salvation from the Lord, you cannot ever lose it. We believe that. And for many of us who have loved ones who are not walking with the Lord right now, there's great comfort in this doctrine of eternal security because it means that if they were ever saved, then they're still saved. What I want to make sure we understand is that once saved, always saved requires a person to have been once saved. We have to look at that list of biblical evidences of salvation that we just talked about and we have to evaluate with ourselves or with anyone else if there's actually any evidence, any reasons to believe that they were ever once saved. Nowhere on that list is they put up their hand at a church service one time. They said yes at a camp one year or at a retreat. Once I had a little bit too much to drink and I was able to lead them in a prayer and, and I'm thinking that counts. None of that stuff is in there. These are serious, legitimate, concrete evidences of salvation. So before we try to comfort ourselves over people we love by saying, oh, well, you know, once saved, always saved, we have to ask the question, were they ever once saved? Was there ever any evidence of their salvation? If they displayed those evidences, man, praise God for eternal security. Be praying that they would repent and return to living for the Lord Jesus. But if they didn't display those evidences, we cannot lie to ourselves by telling them that they're saved when the evidence says they've never been saved. We need to be praying diligently for their salvation, praying that the Lord would reach their heart and we need to not be giving up on them, continuing to pray for them, continuing to share the gospel with them as we can. There are two parables of Jesus that I would recommend you revisit if you'd like to pursue the study further. The first is the parable of the prodigal son and the second is the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower as it's sometimes called. I put the references on your outline. You can look at them later. In the parable of the prodigal son, most of us know it. If you don't, you can go study it and then come back to this. I think it's important to notice that the prodigal was, he was a son before he left. He was a son before he left. The story of the prodigal son is not about a guy who's born in the mess of the pig's pen, stays in the mess of the pig's pen, never goes back to the father, but claims that that's his father with no evidence. That's not how the story goes. The story of the prodigal son is about someone who's already a son before he's left. And you can make a very good case for the parable being about a backslidden believer and about eternal security. That it's someone who's already in the family of God who walks away. 
The Father longs for them, but waits for them to return. And when they do, there's forgiveness. You can make that case very, very well. I would advise against saying, no, 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 this is definitely about, only about non-believers. Because again, it's not about a person who was born in the pig pen. It's about a person who at one time was in the Father's house. That's where the story begins. But I would also point out here that in that story, we're not told how long the son is away in his rebellious state. We're not given the exact length of time. I'm going to make a point with that in just a minute. In Matthew 13, in the parable of the soils, you might recall Jesus describes four different responses to the gospel as the way four different soils respond to seed being cast upon them. You have the soil that represents the hard heart that rejects the gospel. You have the soil that represents the shallow heart who claims to have received the message but is not actually willing to have Jesus come into their life as Lord and God. They're like, oh, I like that not going to hell stuff. I like that blessings talk. That's good stuff. Jesus is Lord of my life. Mm, mm, not into that. And the implication is that, that they're not really saved because they accepted a deal that God isn't offering. The third soil is the divided heart, which was excited to receive the gospel. It's the person who believes they've given their life to Jesus, but their love for Jesus just cannot compete with their worldly fears and passions and pursuits. When we studied that one, we even pointed out, are they saved? We don't know. We don't know. And that's scary. Because if that's you, you don't want to be in the place where you're 50% sure that your eternity is with the Lord Jesus. We don't know in that third one. And then lastly, there's the, the fourth soil, the devoted heart that's all in on following Jesus. And in that parable too, Jesus doesn't tell us how long it takes for the shallow and divided hearts to fall away. He doesn't give us a timeline. He doesn't say, oh, if someone receives the gospel but falls away within three months, then you know it wasn't real. Six months, a year, 10 years. He doesn't give us a timeline. What the scriptures don't allow us to do is to say, well, if a person appears to be saved for this many years, then they've crossed the threshold and they're definitely saved. Scriptures don't let us do that. They also don't let us say, well, if a person walks away from the Lord for this many years, then they're definitely not saved. Clearly. The Bible doesn't give us that information. So if we think someone is saved and they turn away from following the Lord or unrepentantly pursue a lifestyle of sin, how do we know if they're the prodigal son or one of the soils that were never saved? How, how do we know? The truth is that, that only time will tell. They will either repent and return to the Lord, proving that they were once saved, or they won't return to the Lord and, and the Lord's judgment in eternity will reveal the truth. So what are we supposed to do with that here and now? Well, when Paul writes to churches, like the one in Corinth, he tells them that they as a church have a duty to be fruit inspectors. Fruit inspectors. Out of love for one another, they are to confront the believer among them who is not displaying any evidence of their salvation. We've talked about this before. It's the great catch-22 for the church because if someone's not a Christian, you know, their favorite knock on the church is, oh, the church is full of what? Hypocrites. Hypocrites, right? 
So then what does the church do? The church does what the Bible says, right? Which is like, okay, well, if someone's not actually living like a Christian, we need to confront them within the church because we don't want to be hypocrites. And then what does the world say? Judgmental. How dare you do that? And it can't be both ways. Because the church is not meant to be full of hypocrisy, we're supposed to actually hold each other accountable. We're supposed to actually say, hey, hey, because I love you, because we don't want to mess around with where we're going to spend eternity, I have to tell you, I'm concerned that you're not displaying the fruit of being a follower of Jesus. Are you doing okay? Are you sure about your salvation? And again, the picture is not a group of believers gathering around a tree to yell at the branches, bear fruit, bear fruit. The picture is a group of concerned workers looking at a tree that appears to be dead and saying, hey, do you mind if we take a look at your roots? Can we talk about the soil that you're planted in right now? Can we we talk about the amount of water you've been taking in because you don't look healthy? And Paul tells the churches that if a believer refuses to repent says, I don't want to talk about it, it's none of your business, or refuses to turn away from the sin, says, yeah, I'm doing that, but I'm not really going to stop. Paul tells those churches, he says, listen, you need to remove that believer from your church so that you let them know that as the church, you can no longer affirm their salvation. As the church, you can no longer say emphatically, Yes, we bear testimony, we witness, we attest to the fact that you are displaying the evidence of salvation. Paul says you've got to remove that stamp of approval from the person who refuses to do the things Jesus has asked them to do. And the whole point is that it should make us, if we're that person, it should make that person go, holy smokes, this is serious. This is serious. My church is telling me like I need to check myself And make sure that my faith is real, that it's genuine. That's the church holding each other accountable to not be hypocrites. But also loving each other enough not to say, well, you know, I don't want to have a difficult conversation. You know, I think it would just be better if they liked me while we're on the earth. And then, you know, if they go to hell forever, at least I won't have to see them because I'll be in heaven. So awkward conversation avoided for the win, right? I mean, either either I'll see them in heaven and they'll be like, thank you for being so gracious. Or they'll be in hell and I'll never see them again. Not, not actually the loving thing to do. So Paul says, do the loving thing, do the hard thing, confront that in the church. And then he says that we're to treat them like they're a non-believer. Everyone hears it and they go, oh, that's so harsh, that's so horrible. But hopefully, when you think about it, you're not being an awful person to non-believers. I'd like to think none of us are. So it's not actually a horrible thing Paul is saying. What do you actually do for a non-believer? Well, you love them. You pray for them. You look for opportunities to talk about the Lord with them. You care for them. You try to show them what the love of Jesus looks like. That's what you do for a non-believer. And Paul says if a person won't repent, is backslidden, doesn't want to receive the correction of the church, treat them as a non-believer. Love them. Pray for them. Call them to come to Jesus. Invite them to come and return. Because our eternal destination is too big of an issue to leave to chance. Far too big of an issue to leave to chance. So we're going to leave it there today. There's not a major action step for us. The the whole point of today's message was just to bring some clarity to the question of how, how do we know that we're saved? How can we know? How do we know if someone else is saved? There has to be more to it then. Well, it's a private thing based on how you feel. 
It's not. It's a very specific deal with very specific terms that God has offered to every single one of us. And if we choose to take the deal, there's going to be evidence for that. Not perfectly, not without ups and downs, but there will be evidence. And God's promise is that if we've placed our faith in him for real, he's going to hold us and he's going to keep us saved all the way through all those ups and downs. It's not going to be like the weather forecast where God says, well, today's forecast is not saved. Tomorrow, maybe. Let's see how you do. That's not what he says. God says through these ups and downs, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to keep you secure. I'm going to keep you saved. You don't have to worry about it. So for all of us, we're doing this in our lives all the time. But the idea is that over the course of our lives, if you charted a line through the middle, there's this steady progression up. None of us are growing in the Lord like this, right? We're all growing in the Lord like this. But the average is trending up. You're like, are you sure, Jeff? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, it, it is, it is, it's trending up. So if you're concerned today about your eternal security, about your salvation, because you're in sin right now, don't sit out there and wait for me to tell you everything is okay. Don't take that chance. Repent. Repent and come back to the Lord today and begin following him. Make sure that he's on the throne of your life. Let him lead and guide you as your king, as your Lord, and as your God. And if you're concerned about someone who's walked away from the Lord, Paul would counsel you to treat them as a non-believer, to love them as a non-believer, to pray for them as a non-believer, evangelize them as a non-believer, and to not give up on them, but to certainly not ignore the evidence and try and absolve yourself of responsibility by saying, well, maybe they were once saved, so they're always saved, so I don't need to do anything. Love them the way that you would love a non-believer. Pursue them the way that you would pursue a non-believer. God's counsel would be that there's no downside to that. There's no downside to that at all. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word and for the wisdom of your word. And thank you that there are ways that we can know if we've truly given our lives to you, Lord. We thank you for that clarity. And Father, it is our desire that you would be the Lord and God and King of our lives. We pray that for everyone we know, everyone we love, every family member, every spouse, every child, grandchild, grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, co-worker. Lord, we want them to know you. And so, Father, I pray that if nothing else, today would just make us check in with you and look at our lives and evaluate these evidences for salvation and make sure that we really are following you, that we're not just paying lip service to the idea of being a Christian, but that we're really following you as your disciples, really living as children of God. And Father, we do pray for those that we don't know for certain are saved. Lord, we ask that it would become certain, it would become clear, that they would give over full control of their lives to you, that they would come to know you, that they would come to be filled by your Spirit, to be born again, to become a new creation. And Father, for all of those, would you just fill our minds with their names and faces right now and stir us up to pray for them again with increasing passion and urgency. Stir us up to love them, to pursue them with the gospel, Lord. Give us boldness 
And help us not to check out, even if it's been years or decades. Because we know that you're the good shepherd that goes after that one sheep. And you went after us, Lord, because you love us. Father, help us to never deceive ourselves, but to learn what your voice sounds like in your word. And even now I ask that you would speak to each of us as we need to hear from you. Be it peace or or comfort or joy or assurance, whatever it is, Lord, you know what we need. and, And we're here because we know that you have what we need. So just do your work in us, Lord, as we love you and worship you this evening, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.